you know the peace of God in your heart? Jesus said, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. My grace, he said, is sufficient for you. We live in a world where there's a lot of turmoil and trouble, a lot of warring, a lot of hostility, a lot of anger. I just had the privilege uh, the latter part of this past week to lead a retreat at Laity Lodge, a large group of people from St. John's Episcopal Church in Houston. Had a simply remarkable, wonderful time. And part of what we talked about was how God can give his people peace in the midst of a troubled world. How God can give people peace that passes all understanding in the midst of cultural wars of all sorts in our land and beyond. Our hearts hunger for that. That internal peace that though the storms are raging all about us, Jesus stands up in the boat of our lives and speaks peace. We live in an age of obliteration. All values are unsettled. All norms are broken. Humanity has become a distorted image of its once noble self. We are like a man getting drunk at his own funeral. We're like a sundial on a stormy day. We cannot tell the time. That quote is from an editorial in Life magazine written 37 years ago. True then, true now. We live in an age of obliteration. All values are unsettled. All norms are broken. Humanity has become a distorted image of its once noble self. We're like a man getting drunk at his own funeral. Like a sundial on a stormy day, we cannot tell the time. We do not have utopia on earth. Never have. Not since the Garden of Eden. And never will. I remember many years ago when Thero Porter was my secretary and no... No church ever had a better secretary, better member, better Sunday school teacher, better everything than Thurl Porter. If Baptists have saints, and we do, we just don't call them that, but if Baptists have saints, Thurl Porter is one of them. Can't come to church now because of the debilitating illness of MS. What a wonderful, wonderful friend. She came into the office one day many years ago, way back. 30 years ago now, I guess. She'd been listening to a religious program, radio broadcast, a preacher on the way to the church church offices that morning. And she came in and she said, uh, we were having coffee in there, and she walked in and said, "I, I have an announcement to make something I just heard on the radio. Heard a preacher say it. Well, what is it, Theron? Well, he said that we're never gonna have 
a Utopia here on earth. And we said, never going to have a what? <clears throat> so that's what the preacher said. <laughs> we were never going we to have a Utopia here on earth. Well, the preacher may not have been very educated in the standpoint of the pronunciation of the word, but he was right. We're never going to have a Utopia or a Utopia, either one, here on earth. He mispronounced the word, but he got the message right. And we preachers sometimes do that. But we're not going to have a utopia or a utopia here on earth until the Lord comes back. And why are we not? We're not because way back in the Garden of Eden, man decided he could run God's show better than God. And regardless of what God said, man just figured he could do it better and he wanted to do his own thing and he did. He rebelled against God, and the moment he did, he knew it, and he began to hide from God. As the scripture says, Adam and his wife hid themselves among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day, saying, Adam, Adam, where are you? You know, God knew where Adam was. He was just trying to get Adam to recognize where Adam was. He'd fouled up. He'd broken God's commandment. And Adam said, I was afraid. And so I hid myself. The result of that disobedience on the part of man, our spiritual forefathers, for all of us in this room, whatever color of our skin might be, whatever race, whatever language, all of us, you trace your family tree back far enough. All of us in this room are sons and daughters of old man Adam. And we've got his blood running in our veins. And we've got his attitudes permeating ours. We're sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Adam felt guilty. Because he felt guilty, he hid from God. And God pronounced judgment upon them because you see sin carries within it the seeds of its own condemnation like a malignancy. Sin carries within it the seeds of its own destruction. The very nature of sin sets about to destroy itself and whoever carries it around. That's the nature of disobedience. And so condemnation followed that. Judgment followed that. And then because God is a God of holiness and purity, as you read the third chapter of the book of Genesis, the first three chapters really you should read, because they're the backbone of what we're going to talk about here today, and they are the premise upon which all the Bible is built. They were then driven from the garden, separated from God, separated from the Garden of Eden, Separated from utopia, separated from utopia. So what happened? There are those of us who agree with the biblical scholars who say that the book of Romans, Paul's book of Romans, the theological book of the New Testament is basically a New Testament 
Christian answer to the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. It's a fascinating study, I would suggest to anyone, to see how God's leadership in the life of the Apostle Paul used him in the book of Romans to delineate God's answer to the fall of man, to guilt, to condemnation, to separation. What is the solution to the dilemma of man? What is the solution to the problems of the heart? Well, man's been trying to get back in the garden or he's been trying to make the world in which he lives a garden. And it just doesn't work. The Society of International Law in Paris, France said that over 6, 000, in over 6,000 years of recorded history, the many more years of history than that, but in the 6,000 years of recorded history, there have only been 268 years of real peace And during those 6,000 years, 268 years of real peace, there have been over 8,000 peace treaties signed. We're not going to have a Utopia here on earth. Man in his deification of secularism believes that if you can just give man enough education... And enough money and enough time, he can fix anything. And so we've gotten the money and we've gotten the education and we've had the time, but there's still no utopia. And there will not be. We're still dealing with those three basic results of disobedience, those three basic results of sin, guilt, Condemnation, separation. Now, I don't think anybody that's alive and well and has any, any sense of reality at all will deny the fact that all of us are sinners. All of us are sinners. By nature and by choice, we're all sinners. This is just basic theology 101. This is Bible 101. This is Christianity 101. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, excuse me, and the Lord hath laid on him, referring to Jesus, on him, the iniquity of us all. Guilt, write these three down in your mind, if not on a piece of paper. If you have your Bible, open it to the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. Guilt, condemnation, separation. That's the result of the 3rd chapter of the book of Genesis. That's the plight of modern man. That's the predicament of our planet. 8th chapter of the book of Romans. I begin with the 31st verse. What then... Shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? What happened was man couldn't get back in the garden 
So the gardener came out to find man. Since man couldn't get back into the presence of God, the presence of God left the garden and came to this planet. For he counted it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things beneath the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul writes in that marvelous book of Philippians. Jesus Christ left the garden. Jesus Christ left the presence of God. Jesus Christ left the Eden of God to come to this world. We couldn't get there. He came here. We couldn't find him. He's come to find us. What shall we then say to these things? God is for us. God loves us. God comes to us. God seeks us. God calls us. Where are you? I want you, but I'm guilty. I'm condemned. I'm separated. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who? will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? And God has chosen you in Christ. Guilt, it's gone. God has chosen you. Jesus Christ came And he took upon him our guilt. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Our guilt, nailed to the cross. Our guilt, carried in the life and the mind of the perfect one. The God who left the garden to come to the desert that we desert dwellers might be led by him back to the garden of God's grace. Your guilt, your guilt is gone. Sons of Adam and Eve, your guilt is gone. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. That word justification is a great big theological word, a kind of six-bit jawbreaker that you learn in the seminary. What does justification mean? Basically, it means this. It means you come back into a relationship with God as though you had never sinned. It's not a pardon. It's not time off for good behavior. To be justified means that you come back into a relationship with God as though you had never sinned. 
And we are justified not by our works, not by our religion, not by our good intentions. We are justified by his grace. You remember the story of Colonel Dreyfus, accused of treason, sentenced to Devil's Island, offered a pardon by the king of France, refused it. <coughs> he said, I'll not accept the pardon because I'm not guilty. And to accept the pardon would be a tacit admission of guilt. I want a new trial. He was taken back, given a new trial, and declared not guilty. That is justification. God has taken away all of your sins. We are justified not by our good works, but by his grace, because the God of Eden has come to the desert of our sin, and he has taken the charge that was against us. We are justified by him. It is God who justifies. What about condemnation? Well, Paul is right there. He's walking right through that third chapter of the book of Genesis when he writes this. Who is he that condemneth? Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who condemns you? Well, a lot of us do a good job of condemning ourselves a lot of the time. And we listen to the condemnation of other people. We have fingers pointed either by our own conscience, maybe our own companions, maybe our culture. Condemnation. What about condemnation? Self-condemnation, the condemnation of others. Let me read you a verse of scripture from 1 John, the third chapter, the 19th verse. My wife, Martha's probably her favorite verse of all her, of her favorites. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Peace, peace, wonderful peace. How do you do that? How do we set our hearts at rest in his presence? Listen to this. Boy, this ought to put some stars back in your sky. This ought to put a smile back on your face. This ought to take a weight of guilt off your heart. Listen, whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Condemnation, gone, nailed to the cross. He suffered our condemnation for us. He became sin for us, the scripture says, who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That we might be made right with God through the sacrificial substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Guilt, gone. Condemnation, gone. Oh, but wait a moment. Back in the third chapter of the book of Genesis, out of the garden, away from God, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, 
Here he quotes something from a psalm and then contradicts it. For your sake we face death all the day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And the New Testament replies, Paul replies, inspired by the Holy Spirit, replies, no. We are not sheep headed for slaughter. No. We're not facing death all the day long. No. In all these things, what things? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, in all of that stuff. In this age of obliteration, when all values are unsettled, all norms are broken, when our humanity has become a distorted image of its once noble self, when we're acting like men getting drunk at their own funeral, like sundials that cannot tell the time because of the clouds of doubt and fear and guilt. No. In all of that stuff, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, listen to this, Boy, there's the sound of trumpets here for you. If you'll hear them, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, that's demons, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, name it, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are more than conquerors, he says, in the midst of all of this, you and I, God's people, knowing the peace of God, which passes all understanding. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Third chapter of Genesis, answered by the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. All of it answered by Jesus Christ who came, took our guilt and our condemnation and our separation. And that cross is the symbol of a promised victory, not only in this life, but in the life to come, right? That cross is the promise of victory. 50 years ago right now, they were fighting on Iwo Jima. One of the bloodiest battles in the history of mankind. Nearly 7,000 Marines killed, over 20,000 other casualties. One-fourth of all the Marines killed in World War II were killed on Iwo Jima. 2,000 of them on the first day. More men killed on Iwo Jima than were killed in the landing at Normandy. They were being decimated on that beach. Some of my friends and maybe some of yours were there and were killed. They were pinned down on that beach because of the tremendous field of fire that had been laid down upon them. And a couple of weeks ago, a Marine said, who was there? We're there, been there about five days, and we were just catching it. People being destroyed all around us. And he said... We saw on the fifth day, we saw the flag go up on the top of Mount Suribachi. 
And he said, when we saw that flag go up, and you know that classic photograph that was taken that's become synonymous with great victories and great patriotism. He said, when we saw that flag go up on the top of Mount Suribachi, he said, we knew we'd won. He said, we figured we'd be out of there in a couple of days because we'd taken the mountain. He said it was over a month until March the 14th. Over a month before the victory was finally won. But he said it's when I saw and we saw that flag on the top of that hill that we knew we were going to win the battle. And win it, we did. Well, 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus planted a cross on top of God's Surabachi, and he said, you've got all hell breaking loose around you down there on the beach, but you're going to win. You're going to win. You're going to be more than conqueror. And nothing, nothing, nothing can defeat you. Not guilt, not condemnation, not separation. With all the trials and tribulations and troubles and problems, I will give you my peace in your heart and I will give you victory at the end of the road. Therefore, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. What a gospel. What a good news. What a Savior. Who wouldn't love him? Who wouldn't trust him? Who wouldn't follow him all the way to victory? I invite you to do that today. I invite you to enlist in the army of God that will be victorious. I invite you to sign up for the cause that will be the only one that outlasts time, that transcends all trouble and promises us victory at the end of the road. Will you come? Will you come be a part of God's people? Not perfect. Not any of us, not all of us together, but committed to him who is perfect, trusting him, endeavoring to follow him faithfully all the way to the end. Will you do that? I invite you on behalf of Christ to come. Be faithful in your commitment to him. As a Christian, let me urge you to be always faithful. Simplified Delhi. Stay with it. Stay true. Stay loyal. Stay along. Because there's victory at the end of the road. Come be a part of that now. And know the peace that passes. Understanding in the midst of troubled times. Let's stand and sing. I'll be here to greet you.